I wonder if you can think of a time when you have tried to persuade someone. Maybe if you are a middle school student or high school student, you can think of a time recently when you tried to persuade your parents to give you something or to let you do something. Maybe in your place of work, you've tried to persuade a boss or a manager to see things your way, a way of doing things that's more efficient, more cost-effective, or that will boost morale. Maybe you've tried to be persuasive in your place of work. If you're a parent, you know the importance of persuading your children, especially as they grow older. As they grow older and transition into adulthood, you need to persuade them to see the big picture, to consider the long term, to make wise decisions. I imagine there is a connection between the importance of the matter and your urgency in seeking to persuade. When something is important to you, when you see something that has significant consequences, your aim and desire to persuade becomes more urgent. I think we all understand the importance of persuasion. Well, today we begin a new sermon series going through the book of Hebrews entitled, Hold Fast. Lord willing, over the next six months, we will preach 24 sermons going through the 13 chapters of Hebrews. If you are not familiar with Hebrews, you can find it in the New Testament toward the back of your Bible. Hebrews was originally a letter written in the first century. Some have even referred to it as a sermon in the form of a letter. Evidence within the letter indicates that it was probably written in the 60s, the mid-60s in the first century, probably somewhere between A.D. 60 and A.D. 65. What that means is that the recipients of the letter, many of the recipients of the letter, were probably second-generation Christians. Some of them may have been eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of the life and the death the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in light of the fact that the letter was written probably about 30 or so years after his death and resurrection and ascension, many of the Christians were probably not eyewitnesses, but second-generation Christians. Another thing that stands out in the letter is that the author assumed his audience had an intimate knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, or what we refer to as the Old Testament. For this reason, it is widely believed that the Christians to whom this letter was originally written were Jewish Christians. They were Jewish Christians with a Jewish background who probably came out of Judaism to faith in Christ. One of the reasons we did a brief sermon series on Leviticus was to grow our understanding of the Old Covenant so that we can hear and study Hebrews in a similar way to the original recipients of the letter. If you weren't here the past few weeks, we did a three-part sermon series going through the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, at a high level. You can find those sermons online. We are not steeped in the Old Testament scriptures as they were, yet through studying the word, we can get a sense of what life was like for the people of God under the Old Covenant. And this is important because Hebrews makes 
numerous comparisons between what took place under the old covenant with what has taken place through Jesus Christ and the new covenant he established. In making these comparisons, the author wrote about and exalted in the beauty, the glory, the sufficiency, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There is a word, there is a term in theology that is called Christology. If you've never heard that term, Christology, Christology refers to the teachings about or the study of or the doctrines concerning Jesus Christ. Christology focuses on who is Jesus and what did he accomplish. In the book of Hebrews, we see profound Christology. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as we study Hebrews, we will appreciate and relish the treasures that we have regarding the teachings about Jesus Christ. The teachings about Jesus Christ in Hebrews are incredibly enriching, edifying. They are good for our souls. In Hebrews, we will encounter deeply enriching theology. And what we see intertwined with the deeply enriching theology are exhortations. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, the author refers to the letter as an exhortation. What is an exhortation? Well, an exhortation is similar to what we talked about with persuasion. When you are exhorting someone, you are encouraging them. You are urging them. You are pleading with them. You are seeking to persuade them to do something or to avoid something. So what we see in Hebrews is that it is a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement, a word to persuade these Christians regarding something in particular. Well, one question that comes to mind is why? Why did the author of Hebrews feel the need to exhort these Christians? Well, what comes out in the letter is that the believers to whom he was writing were going through a hard time and were experiencing doubt. In chapter 10, the author recounted how they had endured a hard struggle with suffering had been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and had even joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. In other words, following Christ came at a high cost for these believers. We also know that even before severe persecution began under the emperor Nero, Christians were looked down upon within the Roman Empire. Christians were ridiculed. They were derided. They were called bigots. They were referred to as haters of humanity. It was hard being a Christian in the first century 
living in the Roman Empire. It was not viewed favorably. It was not embraced. You were looked at with suspicion. You were cast aside by family members. You may have been denied good jobs. Following Jesus came at a high cost. And while they had endured thus far, the author of Hebrews was concerned that over time, they might be tempted to drift away from Jesus, from confidence in the gospel, and from fellowship with the church. Most likely, they were Jewish Christians tempted to return to their Jewish way of life under the old covenant, which would have been an easier path with less opposition. Throughout Hebrews, we will see phrases such as, don't drift. Guard your heart against hardening unbelief. Strive to enter God's rest. Don't fall away. Hold fast to the hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Do not throw away your confidence and run with endurance. These are words of exhortation. In this way, the letter or sermon was pastoral in nature. He wrote with the heart of a shepherd who did not want to see the sheep go astray. His goal, his aim, his desire, his burden was to exhort these Christians so that they would remain faithful to Christ in spite of the trials and suffering and persecution and hardship that they experienced. He wanted them to persevere, to remain faithful to Christ and to the church in light of their temptation to drift away. Hebrews provides a timely word for us. All scripture is relevant for every culture and every generation. And it is not hard at all to see the relevance of Hebrews for us today in our time and in our culture. While the cultural situation is different today than it was for the Christians in the first century, the temptation addressed in Hebrews is a temptation for many today. Many of us have personal examples of people we know who have professed to be Christians but have drifted away from confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ and devotion to his church. The longer I go in ministry and the more I study Hebrews, the more I resonate with the burden of the author. One of the greatest burdens, one of the greatest challenges as a pastor is seeing people who have professed Christ drift away. Drift away from confidence in the gospel. Drift away from fellowship and devotion to the church of Christ. And every pastor feels this 
every pastor who loves Christ in the church feels this burden. But it is not only the burden of pastors. Every member of the church who loves Christ and cares for his body feels it too. Everyone who loves Jesus and knows what it means to belong to the church feels the weight of seeing friends or family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, drift away. Many of you have felt this pain in a personal way. And so I hope and pray that the Lord will use our study of Hebrews to strengthen us in the faith, to grow our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to increase our affection and our awe of Jesus so that you and I will be those who endure, so that you and I will be those who persevere in the faith. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord use our study of Hebrews to that end. I also hope and pray that he will use our study of Hebrews to equip us to help others persevere in the faith. I hope he will use it to strengthen our faith, but I also pray that he will use it to equip us to help others grow in their faith. The Lord wants to use you to help others persevere in the faith, just as he used the author of Hebrews to help these Jewish Christians persevere in their faith. He wants to use you speak words of encouragement. He wants to use you so that you will speak the truth in love to your brothers and sisters in Christ who need to hear and be reminded of the truth in Christ. Hebrews is a wonderful powerful, beautiful, glorious letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is a literary masterpiece. It is a wonderful means of growing our knowledge and affection for Jesus Christ. It is a means by which the Lord will strengthen our church so that we will remain faithful to him and so that we will faithfully witness and testify to our community and to the world around us about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask you to pray. Pray with me to that end. Pray that the Lord will use our study of Hebrews to strengthen our faith. Pray that he will use our study of Hebrews to equip us to help others persevere and endure in their faith. May we be those who hold fast to Christ. May we be those who help others hold fast to Christ. Our text today is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Before we read the text, let me give you an overview of what we will see. In verses 1 and 2, we will read about what God has done. In the first part of verse 3, 
we read about who Jesus is. In the second part of verse 3, we will read what Jesus has done. And then in verse 4, we will read what Jesus became. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I encourage you to follow along. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So first, we read about what God has done. In the opening verses, the author jumps right into some of the central themes that will be developed and unpacked throughout the letter. Hebrews begins with a contrast, which is fitting as we will see numerous contrasts throughout the book. What God has done can be divided into two parts. What, God, uh, what We read about what God has done long ago in verse 1 which is then contrasted with what God has done in these last days in verse 2. What he described in verse 1 was a summary of the Old Testament scriptures and the way the Lord spoke to his people under the Old Covenant. For example, the Lord spoke through Moses, who was a prophet, to his people Israel. Many more prophets came after him, including Deborah, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, and Elisha. In the New Testament, Peter referred to King David as a prophet in Acts chapter 2. And then, of course, we have the prophetic literature, including words from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets. The Lord progressively revealed himself and his will to his people by speaking through many prophets in many ways. He revealed his name to them. He revealed his character and his nature. He revealed his desire for his people to dwell with him, for his, his desire to make his dwelling among them. He revealed his law, which is a reflection of his values. He revealed himself continually, repeatedly, progressively, at many times, in many ways, through his prophets. The Lord was gracious and kind to speak to his people through his prophets, especially since his people were not particularly keen on listening and obeying. In Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord told the prophet, But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster for Ezekiel? The highs and the lows. On the one hand, the Lord is speaking to you. You are going to be the Lord's prophet. How awesome is that? On the other hand, no one's going to listen. 
the highs and the lows. You are a prophet of the Lord, but no one's going to listen to you. One way the Old Testament might be characterized is that the Lord spoke to his people through his prophets, and his people refused to listen. Yet what did the Lord do? Did he give up on humanity? Did he say, I've tried time and time again. I have made myself known through mighty deeds. Through my prophets, I have proved myself beyond any shadow of a doubt to my people. I have given them my word so that they might know me, so that they might enjoy life with me, that I might bless them richly and abundantly, but they have utterly refused to listen and obey. Therefore, I am done. They've had their chance. They've had far too many chances. Did he give up? No. Verse 2 begins with the phrase, but in these last days, indicating that a new period in redemptive history had begun with the ushering in of a new covenant. These last days was a phrase referring to a new era in redemptive history, namely the era of fulfillment. God made wonderful promises in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So what is different about these last days compared to the days long ago? What's the difference? Well, for one, the audience. Whereas under the old covenant, God spoke to our fathers, in these last days, the author of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us. Brothers and sisters, that includes us. We are those who are living in these last days. And how has he spoken to us? By his prophets? No. He has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken definitively by his son to fully and finally reveal himself to us. In the latter part of verse 2, the author impresses on us the significance of this. In case we don't get it, in, in case it's not immediately apparent how extraordinary this is. We read that God not only spoke to us through his son, but also appointed him the heir of all things and created the world through him. In describing him as the heir of all things, we have a reference to Psalm chapter 2. William Lane notes that Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, celebrating the enthronement of a royal figure. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So at the beginning of Hebrews, Jesus is described in terms of inheriting that which was 
promised to the king in the line of David, the descendant of King David, who would become the great king. As a descendant of David, Jesus is a human being. But he is clearly more than a human being because he is the one through whom God created the world. He is the agent of creation. Now, I do think it's important that we see that this is not the only place where Jesus is described as God's agent of creation. In John chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, John writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Referring to Jesus in Colossians 1.16, Paul wrote, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not the first and greatest being created by God. We know this because all things were created through him. Everything that was made, everything that was made was made through him. Therefore, nothing has been made apart from him. Therefore, Jesus is not, again, the first and greatest created being. He has always existed. Everything that was created was created through him. The focus on Jesus continues in verse 3, but the subject changes. Whereas verses 1 and 2 focus on what God has done, with God the Father being the subject, Jesus is the subject in verses 3 and 4. The first half of verse 3 focuses on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Brothers and sisters, this phrase speaks powerfully to the nature of Jesus. To fully understand and grasp the work of Christ, we must know who he is. What this verse reveals to us is that Jesus fully shares and displays the divine nature. He brilliantly mirrors, reflects, reveals, and shows forth the glory of God. In short, Jesus is God. In a survey recently conducted by Ligonier Ministries, 43% of people who identify as evangelical Christians agree with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Close to half of professing Christians 
are not Christians according to Jesus' definition of a Christian. Hebrews impresses on us emphatically that Jesus is God. Whatever problems we observe in this world, and there are many, I hope we are troubled the most by this one. It's easy to point out the sins and the failures and the evil in the world, but brothers and sisters, we who are a part of the church ought to be primarily concerned with the church, and nearly half of people who claim to be Christians don't believe that Jesus is God. This is a problem. Jesus is God. There are no two ways about this. Again, we see this throughout Scripture. In John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus affirmed this many times in many ways in his ministry. For example, he claimed the authority to forgive all sins. When he told the man, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders thought he was blaspheming because Only God has the authority to forgive someone's sins. They were right about that. They just failed to see that Jesus is God. Jesus said, before Abraham was, Abraham who lived thousands of years before him, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I have existed for all of eternity even before Abraham, and in using that phrase, I am, he was referring to the divine name, I am, which in Hebrew is Yahweh. He referred to himself as Yahweh, the one true and living God. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. His divine nature is also described in verse 3 in terms of upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. Not only is he the one through whom God created the world, but he is also the one who is presently sustaining the universe. God created the universe through Christ, and he did not then back away and allow things to just run. He did not take his hands off and allow things just to go on their own. No, we read that Jesus is presently sustaining the universe by the word of his power. He is in control of every molecule. The world, the universe is continuing on because Christ is presently sustaining the universe. Who is Jesus? 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one through whom God created the world, and he is the one presently sustaining the universe by his powerful word. This Jesus is the one by whom God has spoken to us. The second part of verse 3 tells us what Jesus has done. First, he made purification for sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the book of Leviticus, we have seen the importance and the necessity of God's people being made clean and forgiven of their sins so that they can live with God in the realm of life and enjoy his sweet, holy, glorious presence. And so the priests under the old covenant would continually offer sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of the people. But their work was never done. They had to make sacrifices year after year after year after year. Jesus came into the world to accomplish what the Levitical code could not ultimately and finally accomplish. He came into the world to make purification for the sins of his people once and for all. Jesus came into the world to make atonement for our sins, past, present, and future. And we all need the forgiveness of our sins. Every single one of us knows us deep down. If you're not a Christian, you are in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. It's been said by many people that all religions are fundamentally the same. They're basically about being a good person. Well, that's not true. For those of us who are Christians, we know that we're not Christians because we're good people. It's actually the opposite. We're Christians because we know we're bad people. We're Christians because we know we are wretched. We are Christians because we are sinful and we are incapable of cleaning ourselves up. We are incapable of getting our act together. We are incapable of living such a good life that God will accept us into his kingdom for all of eternity because of how good we've lived. We know that we have no hope of saving ourselves, of living a good and righteous life. And that is why we're Christians. We're Christians because we desperately need a savior. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to save wretched sinners like us to make atonement for our sins through his sacrificial death upon the cross. Christ lived a perfectly sinless life, and therefore he was able to offer a sacrifice of infinite value, the sacrifice of his life. His body was broken. His blood was shed 
to make atonement for our sins. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God saves sinners like us in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, unlike all of the sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant, is sufficient to atone for all of our sins. The good news is that those who believe in Christ, those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ, will be forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, and will thus be reconciled to God that we might be made holy and enjoy his presence for all of eternity. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of your sins. No more sacrifices are necessary. So friend, if you're not a Christian, I exhort you, believe in Christ and be saved. Receive the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. Be reconciled to God and know his extraordinary love. Experience life with him. There is nothing greater. After making purification for our sins, we read that Christ sat down. It is very important for us to see the emphasis on the phrase, he sat down. Jesus is the subject of verse 3, and sat down is the main verb. What's the big deal? You all came in and sat down. Why the emphasis on Jesus sitting down? When we read about Christ sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, we are reading a description of his exaltation. Christ was exalted. He was glorified. He was honored above all names. You see, when Christ came into the world, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh, assuming the role of a servant. He humbled himself more than we could possibly imagine. He even humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, a humiliating, excruciating death upon a cross. We refer to this as the con condensation of Christ. Christ condescended. He condescended. He was humiliated for our sake. Yet after he was humiliated, after his condescension, he was exalted. He was lifted up. He was vindicated through his resurrection from the grave and through his ascension into heaven and through his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. His sitting down brought to completion his glorious exaltation. In describing Christ sitting down, we also have the first reference in Hebrews to Psalm 110. The author references Psalm 110 about a dozen times throughout the letter. In Psalm 110, verse 1, we read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit 
at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like Psalm 2, Psalm 110 is also regarded as a royal psalm. Tom Schreiner notes that the right hand signifies power, protection, and triumph. He writes, here the author emphasizes the forgiveness of sins. For the Son is seated at God's right hand since his work is finished. And he reigns at God's right hand as the Lord of the universe and as the Davidic Messiah. The exaltation of Christ is a common theme in the New Testament. And thus we see Hebrews shares the worldview of the New Testament in presenting Christ as the exalted and reigning king over the universe. Christ sat down because he triumphed over his enemies. He sat down because his work in making purifications uh, for our sins was finished. He sat down because he is the king who is reigning over the universe. Christ is the one who came into the world to make purification for our sins. And his work in making purification for our sins is finished. And thus, unlike the priests under the old covenant, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In verse 4, we read what Jesus became. He became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, on the one hand, we know that he was always superior to the angels. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the one through whom the world was made. So on, in one sense, he has, of course, always been superior to the angels. But when Jesus came to earth, he added to his divine nature a human nature. He added to his divine nature a human nature. He humbled himself and became a servant. So during his earthly ministry, at a particular point in time in history, he became God-man. As God-man, he lowered himself, subjected himself to humanity. He even took on the role of the lowest servant in the house by washing the feet of his disciples. And as I said, he suffered a humiliating, shameful, excruciating death. And it was after he humbled himself, after he lowered himself, after he became God-man, he was exalted. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lowered himself by taking on flesh, was exalted to the right hand of the Father. In his exaltation the God-man became far superior or so much better than the angels. And when he refers to the name he inherited, it's probably a reference to his title as the Son of God. Being the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, is far superior than being an angel. Why was it necessary to drive home this point? Why was he impressing on them that Jesus is far better far superior 
to the angels. Perhaps some of the Christians were simply thinking too highly of angels and wrongly giving them an elevated status. But a more likely explanation was that these Jewish Christians associated angels with the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses. For example, we see this connection in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul said that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, when Stephen was preaching, he referred to the law as being delivered by angels. So they rightly saw a connection between angels and the revelation and giving of the law under the old covenant. By emphasizing Jesus' superiority to angels, the author of Hebrews is laying the groundwork for a theme he develops throughout his letter. Namely, that Jesus is superior to the law of Moses and the covenant that the Lord established with Israel at Mount Sinai. If these Christians were tempted to go back to their old life, their old life in Judaism, to forsake Christ and his church, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't go back to Judaism. Jesus is far better. You'll be forsaking that which is far superior for that which is inferior. Don't forsake Christ for something far lesser. What do we need to see in these verses? Well, the author brilliantly packs so much into these first four verses. I think the best way to summarize what we need to see is, first, God speaks. Second, God speaks definitively by his son. And finally, the son is superior to prophets and angels. First, God speaks. Hebrews begins with a contrast between the way the Lord spoke long ago by the prophets and the way the Lord has spoken in these last days by his son. While we must understand the contrast highlighted, highlighted in these verses, we also do well to see the continuity between the days of old and these last days. Namely, God speaks. We have seen that God has spoken by his prophets. And we have seen that God has spoken by his son. We also see that the scripture is referred to as the word of God. In numerous places, Jesus referred to the Old Testament as God's word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul said that all scripture is breathed out by God. Even the preaching of the Bible is referred to as God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. God speaks to us through his word. That's why what you're doing right now is exceedingly important. What you're doing right now, sitting and listening to the preaching of God's word, is a means by which you listen to God in so much as that the preaching is truly from his word. So what you're doing is exceedingly important. 
listening to God's word. Listening to God's word preached. God speaks to his people. He has spoken by his prophets. He has spoken definitively through his son. And he speaks to us through his word, which reveals the word of his son. The Lord speaks. He reveals himself. He makes himself known. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know his will. And he speaks in such a way that we can understand. With the emphasis on God speaking, the question is, how well do you listen? How well do you listen? Brothers and sisters, we do not want to be characterized in the way that the Lord's people were characterized when the Lord described his people to his prophet Ezekiel. We do not want to be characterized or described in that way, that though the Lord speaks, we do not listen. How well do you listen to the Lord? How well do you listen to his word, which he has graciously given to us in your own time when you're coming here and listening to the word preached do you listen to the word preached and quickly forget what you've heard do you read your bible for close it and quickly forget what you've read how well do you listen god speaks and therefore we must listen and obey The next thing we need to see is that God has spoken definitively by his son. While we see that God speaks, these verses emphasize that God has spoken finally and definitively through his son, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points forward to and anticipates the coming of Christ. And the New Testament, which Christ authorized, reveals and points back to Christ. God's revelation in Jesus Christ is complete. The only way to know God is through Jesus. The question then is, how well do you know Jesus? How did Jesus come into the world? Why does that matter? Why did he come into the world? What did he reveal about God? What did he teach What did he do? What meaning do we find in his actions? How does he want you to relate to him? What does he say about your sin? What does he say about what it means to follow him? What should his followers expect to experience in this life? What did he say about the church? How valuable is the church to him? How are we as his people to live together as the church? How are we to relate to the government? What does he say about paying taxes? What does he say about the blessed life? What does he say about the future? Brothers and sisters, these are important questions. 
And all these questions find their answers in God's word. How well do you know Jesus? How well do you know his heart? How well do you know what's important to him? How familiar are you with his teachings? Do you know Jesus personally and intimately? He desires that. He desires that you will know him, that you will abide in him. You will be one with him. He is not someone we merely learn about. He is someone we enter into personal relationship with. As Christians, we experience union with Christ. We are united to Christ, and we are to abide in Christ. We are to know and experience deep and personal, intimate and fellowship, intimate fellowship with him. That would only happen when we know him. God has spoken definitively by his son. How well do you know his son, Jesus Christ? Finally, we need to see the son is superior to prophets and angels. The recipients of the letter had a high view of prophets and angels. They held them in high honor. The first four verses highlight Jesus' superiority over both. He was saying, as much as you respect and honor the prophets and the angels, you ought to respect and honor Jesus far more because he is far better. He is far more deserving of your admiration, of your affection, of your praise. One of the themes we will see throughout the letter is that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And Jesus is superior. Whatever or whomever you hold in high regard, Jesus is better. In these verses, we see Christ's role in creation, revelation, and redemption. We see that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is the greatest prophet in that God has spoken definitively and finally by him. He is the greatest priest in that he made purification for our sins once and for all. He is the greatest king in that the world was made through him. He is the heir of all things. He is presently sustaining the universe by the word of his power, and he is seated at the right hand of God. If you don't know Jesus that well, and you are struggling with motivation to know him better, if you are spiritually lazy, or if you are spiritually apathetic, then Hebrews, Hebrews provides the antidote for you. In Hebrews, we see the beauty, the glory, the superiority, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We are able to see that Jesus is better than anything else we are chasing after in this life. Whatever it is that we are chasing after, that we think will satisfy us, that we think will make us happy, that we think will alleviate our consciences, that we think will make us whole, whatever it is that we are chasing after, Jesus is far better he alone is our great prophet who has revealed God to us. He alone is our great priest who has made purification for all of our sins. He alone is our king 
The one who created and is presently sustaining the universe. Brothers and sisters, I hope Hebrews fuels our worship. If nothing else, this book should fuel our worship of Christ as we see his beauty, his glory, his superiority, and his supremacy. You see, if we are going to be those who hold fast to Jesus Christ and maintain our confidence in the gospel, if we are going to be those who endure and persevere in the faith, then we must see and behold Jesus. If you try to obey his commands without seeing how awesome he is, you're going to peter out. You're going to falter. You'll drift. You must see and behold Jesus Christ. And these verses powerfully remind us who Jesus is and what he has done. They provide the, the fuel that we need to hold fast to Christ in the gospel. So let us see. Let us behold. Let us delight in Christ for who he is, for what he has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are awesome. You are the Holy One. And you have spoken to us by your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Jesus, you are awesome. No one and nothing compare with you. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you, to behold you in all of your glory. We pray that we will be those who know that you are better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.